I'd like to um, get into a couple more teachings. And, and then the last thing we'll do for the day is, is go through the Metta Sutta um, and discuss that. There are some, it's interesting to kind of look at the different elements of it. Uh, here's a teaching that's really fun. <laughs> the 11 benefits of practicing loving kindness. Number one, you will sleep easily. Two, you will wake easily. Three, you will have pleasant dreams. Four, people will love you. Five, devas, the kind of angels, devas and animals will love you. Six, Davis will protect you. Seven, external dangers such as poisons, weapons, and fire will not harm you. Now it's getting good. Eight, your face will be radiant. That's Malika, right? Nine, your mind will be serene. Ten, you will die unconfused. And 11, you will be reborn in happy realms. So there you go. If you're wondering what the benefit of this was, the gods will protect you. Well, the, after the big fires last year, up uh, north particularly, the Abayagiri Monastery uh, was in Redwood Valley, it's up near Ukiah, was right in the middle of fires. And they evacuated. While they were evacuated, this um, fire company from New Mexico was coming up this canyon. And they found the monastery, and it was a perfect uh, staging area for them. It was really good infrastructure, water source, the Russian River, in its early stages, kind of runs by there. So they, they set up there. And uh, at one point, and they have good fire breaks around. The, the monks take very good care of the land, you know. So at one point, the fire is coming from the, up, the canyon on the other side of the hills. The, the firemen set up a, a line. They're standing there. As the fire crests the hill, it starts coming down the hill towards them. And they said halfway down the hill, it just stopped and just turned around, burnt back up. And and they literally said to the abbot of the monastery, it was as though the monastery would not burn. And they said, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. It was like never seen a fire just stop midway down a hill and just burn back up, you know. So, you know, when that happened, I saw the abbot of the monastery, Ajahnpasano, and it was kind of like everybody kind of looking at each other like, wow, they do a lot of metta up there. Do you think it was the thing that, you know, the fires will not harm you? you 
And of course, nobody's going to like claim that that's what happened, but who knows? So um, this this day, uh, there's a lot. I have a lot of material, and we're not going to get to it all today. So we might, I might have to do this again, or do a, a longer session. Um, They've started doing multi-day non-residential retreats here that have been really nice, so I might try to offer that. So I'm going to kind of go through a little more quickly a couple of the suttas. So the where it says MN31, Chula Gosinga Sutta, C in Pali is pronounced like CH. I have this one phrase, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. So it comes from a sutta where uh, the Buddha uh, comes to visit the three monks who are living in a forest and they're kind of having their own meditation retreat in the forest. And the Buddha has recently uh, come from a, a, a monastery where there was a big uh, schism going on where these groups of monks were fighting with each other and he was really kind of fed up with them they wouldn't listen to him trying to calm them down and it turns out they were fighting about how people took care of the toilet so it was like it just reminded me of like very domestic kind of problems that people have like you, you always leave the toilet seat up you know uh, sort of thing and and, um, and so when he gets to uh, Gosinga the Chula Gosinga means the shorter discourse in Gosinga, so Gosinga is a is a village. He gets to Gosinga, and these three monks are in the forest. He goes, and he's very like uh, inquisitive about how they're behaving. So, uh, MN means Majjhima Nikaya. This is the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, aka the middle length discourses of the Buddha. So this is thirty one. There are one hundred and fifty seven in here so so the uh, I like this story because he so he comes in and the the kind of leader the the senior of the three monks is Anuruddha and he so he goes through this uh, whole uh, series of questions uh, says I hope you're keeping well hope you're all comfortable I hope you're not having any trouble getting alms food and the Anuruddha says, that, yeah, we're comfortable not having trouble getting alms food. And then he says, I hope you are living in concord with mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. And, and as these suttas, these were originally an oral tradition, so there's a lot of repetition. And so Anuruddha says the exact words back to the Buddha. Yes, we are living in concord, mutual appreciation without disputing, blending like milk and water viewing each other with kindly eyes. But the Buddha doesn't, won't leave it at that. He's, and then he says, well, how do you live thus? Uh, and then Anuruddha says, well, I, I think it is a gain for me that I'm living with such companions in the holy life. So he kind of is reflecting on his gratitude for having a, other monks who want to practice with him, that he's not alone. And then he says, I maintain bodily acts of loving kindness toward them, 
openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving-kindness openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving-kindness openly and privately. So he's, these are the, in Buddhism, these are the three forms, well, it's not just in Buddhism, but as the Buddha teaches, these are the three forms of action, the three ways that we create karma through mental, uh, verbal, and bodily or physical acts. acts. Um, and so Anuruddha is saying, not only do I sit here and do loving kindness in my mind, but I actually act on it, right? This is how I behave. Um, this, is, this is kind of a critical uh, piece because a lot of times, as I say, this practice is depicted as just a mental activity. And it's a very limited way to practice loving kindness. Once again, the, my, my title, Living Kindness. So then he says, I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? Venerable ones, venerable is another term for a monk. Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, but one in mind. I love that line. We are different in body, but one in mind. Again, acknowledging that, yeah, we all have our, you know, we seem to be different, but we all have the same experience. We all experience suffering. We all experience joy. Um, So this, to me, is kind of the heart of the sutta, this one little paragraph. And... So that's why I pulled out this one phrase, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? So if we had more time, I would have you guys talk about it, but um, I'll just say a few things about it for now and something you can think about. Um, Because it's, you know, it's obviously an altruistic wish. It's a very kind wish and very generous wish. And it expresses exactly what the sutta is about and what the Buddha teaches, you know, this kind of selflessness. But we also know that some people, I'd say a fair number of people, consider what others want more than they consider what they need. You know, and that this isn't really an absolute Instruction. You know, if we take this as always saying, well, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Oh, no, I don't need anything. That we wind up giving ourselves away. So it's not really as, as simple as that. It, it sounds good. It sounds, uh, it's kind of like an ideal. Oh, I want to be that person who's always thinking of others. But what happens when you do that, when you never think of yourself? Um, you know, and this is... Uh, in some ways, you know, a gender problem because it tends to be women who tend to sacrifice a lot more than men. And then in relationships, you know, it's not uncommon that the women in this, you know, we see this as, you know, a contemporary issue as women work more, right? But then, then we turns out they do studies and shows they're doing just as much of the housework as they were before. The men didn't, like, didn't pick up, you know, to do their side of it, right? Um, and so uh, it's not so simple as, oh, I'll just set aside what I want, want to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. Sometimes s- some people need to do the exact opposite of this. 
They need to stop helping other people and do what they want to do or ask people to do things for them. So I just find this, uh, you know, a, a really good inquiry, this question. Not, a, not an instruction, but an inquiry to look into. You know, it's basically a question about selfishness and selflessness. Where am I on that spectrum? You know, because I tend to do a lot more for myself than I do for others. You know? And I see that my wife tends to do more for others than, than well, certainly than I do. Um, which is one of the things that I realized. Like my wife's not a you know Buddhist, and you know what? In my earlier, more judgmental years before I was fully enlightened, <laughs> all right, partially enlightened, I. You know, I kind of had this like, oh, well, you know, I'm more spiritual than her in the back of my mind. I know it might have even been in the front, but anyway, it was, you know, oh, you know, she doesn't meditate like I do, you know. And then I, real- and then I saw that, like, she was much more generous than I was, much more giving to people and, and uh, you know, generous with their time. And I was like, oh, right, okay. So that then became a good model for me. So, you know, the, the, the sutta then goes on, and uh, and there's this whole like paragraph just about how they take care of their campsite and how they clean it up and how everybody does their part. And it's it's you know you look and you think, well, this was preserved for 2,500 years. Why did they think this was important to preserve? You know, but it's. To me, it's really about showing, about living together, about living in community, and that that's really important. You know, again, Western Buddhism particularly sometimes thinks about meditation as this solitary practice. Well, I'll come to Spirit Rock, I'll learn to meditate really well, and that'll really help me, you know. But if you look at what the Buddha set up as the, the three refuges, this is like the guidelines to our practice, the refuge in Buddha, which is the refuge in the enlightened mind and the enlightened one, the refuge in Dharma, in the teachings, the practices, great. But the third refuge is the refuge in Sangha, the community. And it's not given a lesser place in the teachings. It's equally important. And so this is like a, a sutta about living in community and about dealing with you know, how, how do we get along with people? You know, how do we um, take care of people while taking care of ourselves? And as I say, you know, the, this other uh, story is called the quarrel at Kosambi, where literally they were arguing about the, the, how you were supposed to leave the water bucket in the toilet, you know. And the, to the point that these monks were, you know, just at complete odds with each other and couldn't couldn't get over it you know and it, it's just so emblematic of like human uh, behavior uh, so i'll just uh, wrap up this sutta right after they finish describing how they clean up their campsite the buddha then says well you abide thus have you attained any superhuman state a distinction in knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. So it's 
very striking that because what he's talking about is have you had an enlightenment experience have you what's your meditation practice like so what he's doing here is he's connecting the way you get along with people the way you live your behavior sila that i talked about a little bit this morning you know connecting that to your meditation practice like take care of your campsite, you know, take care of each other. And then if you do that, your practice will develop, you know. Uh, he doesn't come in to the, meet the monks and say, how's your meditation going first? He says, how are you getting along first? Because that's the foundation for it. In order to develop a practice, you can't do it alone and you can't do it if you're living in chaos and in conflict. Uh, that's a striking and very... And a fun sutta. Um, so the next one that I'm going to go through a bit, and and this, and both of these I go through in detail in the book. Simile of the saw. Um, the simile of the saw is is um, in the the theme of it is how to practice patience in the face of attacks from others or, the in, or even just in the face of criticism of others. And it's, it's really quite, it, it's quite a remarkable sutta. If you ever get interested in studying the suttas, uh, it's Majjhima Nikaya 21 and it's, it's got this whole, a whole series of little vignettes and then it has this kind of climactic scene. But each of these vignettes is about this same thing. So it, it starts out with this one monk who is, as it says, associating over much with the nuns. <laughs> and the, the Buddha calls him to him and says, you know, you have to stop... Um, Taking the, it's not. It's he's he's not telling him so much to stop associating over much with them. He says, uh, he says the, the the monk's name is Molia Faguna. Is it true that you are associating over monk over much with bhikkhunis? That's the nuns. That you're associating so much with them that. If another monk speaks dispraise, you become angry and displeased and rebuke him. And if any monk speaks dispraise of you, the bhikkhunis get angry and displeased. And, and Faguna, uh, to his credit, is honest and says, yes, that's, that's what happens. The Buddha says, first of all, he says, it is not proper for you to associate over much with the bhikkhunis. Well, okay, I take it back. He does say you shouldn't associate over much with the he says, therefore, if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires, any thoughts based on the household life. So what he's saying is, if you hang around with the nuns too much, you're going to want to get married. You're going to want to have, you know, have sex, basically. And you know, you're going to leave the, the uh, monastic life. He says, you're, instead, he says, you should train thus. My mind will be unaffected. I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for the welfare of anybody who speaks dispraise of the bhikkhunis with the mind of loving kindness without inner hate. But then he gets more uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, intense about this. 
And the Buddha says, uh, if anyone should give you a blow, oh no, if anyone gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life, and you should re- train thus, my mind will remain unaffected. And you know, was, So that's a pretty shocking statement. Even if somebody attacks these nuns, you should, don't get angry. Well, as I was working on this book, I went to uh, Ajahn Pasna, who's the abbot of Abhayagiri Monastery, he actually just left that role, but... Uh, and asked him about this, among other things. And he very wisely pointed me to a key word in this, that the Buddha says, you should practice thus, my mind will be unaffected. He doesn't say you shouldn't protect them. He doesn't say you shouldn't stop someone from harming them. He says you shouldn't get angry with it. And this is like the critical thing for the Buddha, right? He, it's all. It always comes down to, in the final analysis, the mind. What is your mind state? You can absolutely protect them and, be, you know, act wisely and carefully, but don't do it out of hatred. So this is the great challenge. And the sutta goes on and gives other examples of this until finally we get this um, this final line. In the sutta, well, it's not the final line, but it's the final uh, kind of key moment where the Buddha says, even if bandits were to sever you savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw, he who gave rise to a mind of hate toward them would not be carrying out my teachings. You know, this kind of crazy... A seemingly crazy suggestion that even if somebody's sawing off our limbs, we shouldn't feel hatred toward them. And, uh, you know, it's... I mean, there's different ways to take this. First of all, I think that we can take it primarily as just the Buddha trying to make a point very strongly. He's not really suggesting that um, you're going to get in that situation and that's what you're going to do. But we do know of circumstances where people have responded like this. You know, mothers whose children have been murdered and who, who wind up forgiving the murderer and, and helping the murderer. There's a famous story of a, a woman who did that, who actually... After, after the murderer got out of prison, she adopted him. Uh, um, and and the, uh, in that story, I don't know if you've heard this, it's probably a chicken soup for the soul story, but um, she apparently went and kept visiting him in prison and said, you know, when you get out, I'm going to kill you or something at some point. Or she said that early on at some point. And then, and then she stopped saying that and started visiting him in prison. And he was a young man. Like when he committed this murder, he might have even been, you know, underage, so that he wasn't in for life. And when he get, and 
and she kind of helped to rehabilitate him in prison. And then when he got out, she, you know, took him in and eventually adopted him. And and one day he said to her, you know, you said when in that courtroom, you know, that you were going to kill me. And she said, I did kill you. You're not the same person you were when you did that act. Now you're a completely different person, you know, by, by loving him and forgiving him. Pretty powerful. It's not quite having your limbs sawed off, but having your child killed is pretty much like having a limb sawed off, right? And, uh, and uh, you know, there's a famous story of a, a Chinese monk uh, during the Cultural Revolution. There, were, there weren't a lot of monks left in China, I presume, but the Red Guard came to his monastery. All the other monks ran off. And uh, the abbot stayed, and the Red Guard came, and he was like in his 80s, and they came and beat him to within an inch of his life. Broken bones, just, you know, cracked skull. They left him for dead. And after the Red Guard left, the other monks and he came back and, st- and tried to nursing him back to health. And he was in such bad condition that they said to him, after you know, after he's you know, after a while of trying to take care of him, and he's in such bad shape, they said, you know, uh, Abbot, please, like, don't keep yourself alive for us. It's okay, you know, you can let go. It's okay if you die, you know. And the Abbot looked at them and said, "I'm not keeping myself alive for you. I'm keeping myself alive for the people who tried to kill me. Because if you kill." an enlightened master, your karma is really, really bad. And he didn't want their karma to be that bad, to, to be ruined like that, which is a kind of stunning level of sacrifice, right? So even though I read this sutta and I think, well, I don't know if that's a real thing, there are moments when humans rise to this level. Uh, and so it's, it's, we can imagine it. Um, but, uh, you know, the main point is just how strongly the Buddha feels about anger. And I referred to it earlier how, you know, he says, you're giving your enemy what they want when you become angry with them. And, it, you know, it's, this is very much the Gandhian and Kingian ideal of nonviolence, right? Nonviolent protest. This was the, what went wrong in the this anti-war movement in the 60s was that people started getting violent in the anti-war movement, and you're you're just replicating the same behavior, right? And how often do we see a revolution where you know we want to overturn this horrible dictator, and we take over, and then you know there's a bloodbath afterwards. It's like no, you're just perpetuating the same thing. So it's the it comes back to what's in the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, "Hatred will never cease by hatred, but by love alone will it cease." This is an ancient and eternal law. I mean, it's a, it's something that it makes sense, and you know, to go, to go back to another thing that the Buddha, to put it in very practical terms, uh, there's a, a classic line where the Buddha says, "Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the habit of mind." So, whatever you, if you would think and ponder upon act, anger. 
repeatedly, that's what you become. You become an angry person. You know, and if you think and ponder upon love repeatedly, you'll become a loving person. It's just how karma works. You know, the cause and effect. The more you do something, the more you tend to do it. The less you do something, the less you tend to do it. So this is what we're, what we're trying to cultivate here. And, and so, uh, again, you know, we uh, can run into this kind of resistance to forgiving the perpetrators. You know, there's a real feeling of like, we want vengeance, or we at least, like, we, we, it can be really hard to forgive them. But when we realize that it's not that we're giving something to them, but that we're letting go of something within ourselves, that becomes the motivation. It has nothing to do with them. It's not that I'm helping them. You know, I'm not helping some, uh, you know, cruel person by thinking kind thoughts of them. I'm helping myself. I'm freeing myself of that burden of hatred. So this is the motivation for this. Uh, Hard to hold on to that idea, but it's our... It's really a key, key teaching that we really want to take with us into our lives to see how every time my mind towards, turns towards hatred and anger, it's poisoning me. It's not poisoning my enemy. So the, these further words in the sutta... You should train thus. Our minds will remain unaffected and we shall utter no evil words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare, for the enemy's welfare, with a mind of loving kindness, without inner hate. We shall abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. So this is the, the attitude, the, this uh, way that the Buddha talks about loving kindness in two ways, both pervading the world with loving kindness, but this idea of without ill will. So it's interesting how oftentimes, probably as much as the Buddha talks about loving kindness in the suttas, he talks about non-ill will and non-hatred. And you can think of that as actually kind of in accord with his fundamental teaching, the Four Noble Truths. So in the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha talks about there is suffering, and there is a cause of suffering, which is craving and aversion, clinging. And then the end of suffering is when we let go of craving and aversion and clinging. And the way to do that, the fourth truth, is the Eightfold Path. But the, the key kind of moment in the Four Noble Truths is between the second and the third And so his key teaching is freedom comes from letting go. So instead of always focusing on trying to get loving kindness and cultivate loving kindness, he says, just let go of ill will. 
So that's the third noble truth. And so that what's implied here is that if we let go of ill will, what's left, what we will find inside us is already love. It's not that we have to manufacture it. You know, when we let go of love, of, of hate, what's there is kindness. It's just that that's... And this is, of course, one of the kind of ways that Buddhism contrasts with the Judeo-Christian model of original sin, or Christian model at least. That in Buddhism there's an idea of, of an original kindness or original goodness that that's who we fundamentally are, this idea of a Buddha nature, is that if you let go of all the negative, what's there is positive. Uh, and I think, that, I think that the reason this gets backward in Christianity is they don't see that hatred and clinging and the five hindrances that that all the things that obscure this are actually not part of us they see that as like that's our fundamental nature and and to me it's kind of like they don't get past that whereas because of the, the buddha's skillful teachings of meditation he allows us to discover for ourselves through this practice that when we let go of all that What's under there is goodness. And, and we don't sort of have a comparable approach in Western religions. That's just my sort of take on that. Um, so I'd like to um, get into the Metta Sutta now. So uh, presumably you have uh, still got your sheet, you didn't throw it away. So what I'd like to suggest is that, again, we have small groups and that the first thing you do, I want you to, if you're looking at the sutta, it starts, this is what should be done. I'd like you to, with your small group, just read through and discuss from there to where it says about a little past halfway down the page, um, that the wise would later reprove. Just read that together and, um, and discuss what you see in that, what, it's, what you think it's about, pick out any key words or phrases, and then we'll, we'll talk about it as a group. Okay? So just making, you don't have to be with the same group you were with, but you can be. Just, um, just get together with some folks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.